Yeah, always a bridesmaid, never a bride. Wait, no. That's not really applicable in this situation, is it? Not unless something has gone terribly wrong. <laughs> I wouldn't mind being the bridesmaid. I think I would look really good in taffeta. Don't you? I've heard you can organize a pretty good bad party. You know, I've never heard of a bachelorette party that was great. In fairness, I've never been to a bachelorette party, so I, 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 don't, I can't really give first-person analysis. I've been to bachelor parties, and those are almost universally bad. No, the rule is we have to say that they're not, though. Mm. I don't want to lie to the people. We don't need... You we, read your... <laughs> you signed the contract. You should have read it. Was that the d disclosure form that you get before you can join any uh, bachelor party? Yeah, the one that Cinnamon usually hands out. Oh, okay. Uh, it, it was not Cinnamon in my case. Uh, you know, cardamom, actually. Because I mean, <laughs> you're just, classy. <laughs> I'm, I'm a classy guy. What can I say? <laughs> oh, mm. I did have some really good Indian food this uh, this weekend, prepared by myself. So that was nice. I, I cheated a little bit. I used simmer sauce. So you cheated a little bit and ordered. I didn't order. I, I cooked. I, I made this Domino's pizza all by myself. <laughs> it does beg the question sometimes. Like, to what degree are you actually responsible for the things you cooked? Like, when you bake a cake. And you literally just dumped a mix out of a box and added water and then successfully put it in an oven. Like, to what degree did you really bake? Uh, zero percent. It's pretty close. I, I forget what show I was watching. It might have been an Alton Brown, might have been something else where they were talking about how, like, Betty Crocker had a cake mix that was perfectly serviceable and you only had to add water to and they actually had to remove ingredients and let people add their own oil and eggs so that they felt they were more involved in the process. It's not that it was perfectly serviceable. It's that it was delicious. <laughs> it was perfect. So what you're saying but, is yeah. this is why we can't have nice things. Yeah. It reminds me of when I am cooking, uh, well, not so much now, but when my kids were really young and they wanted to help, I would give them lots of tasks that felt like helping, but wouldn't make it into the final product because I wanted the final product to be good. Right. You want things to like work. Yeah. But I just want them to feel like they're doing something. God, I feel like this is just a metaphor for some kind of technology and doesn't fit in well with this, this week's subject, but oh well, whatever. Hello, alleged human, and welcome to the Chaos Lever podcast. My name is Ned, and I'm definitely not a robot. If I were a rich man, I would not buy a pool filled with mineral oil to soak my weary carbon fiber composite frame. I would certainly not retrofit my tungsten alloy core, alloy core with unobtainium. I would buy puppies for all my human friends because that's what rich human people do, right? With me is Chris. Hi, Chris. Would you like a puppy? Composite? Composite? Yes. 
I've heard composite. it both ways. <laughs> yeah, well, you've heard it 50% wrong. <laughs> I didn't give ratios. You're making assumptions, sir. Look, you need to learn to put the emphasis on the right syllable. <laughs> you know, every time I tried to do that, I always put the emphasis on the wrong syllable, and I just get mocked by people like you who talk English good. Everyone is deeply confused and scared of you and the public educational system. <laughs> So it's a day ending in Y is what you're saying. <laughs> well, that is how I like to keep our audience terrified, but engaged. Mm. And what are they going to be engaging on this week? We're going to be talking about Edgefield Puppy. Day 2. Huh? Oh. Oh. What did you think it was? I thought it was puppies. Oh, we could talk about puppies. So funny story. Maybe not funny, but somewhat amusing. Well, maybe not. Anyway, so on Saturday night, as is tradition, the wife and I were watching some TV, drinking some delicious wine, and the dog was laying on the couch next to me, on her back, feet up in the air, snoring. Nice. So, I, so I took a nice, like, 10-second video of her snoring. And I was like, this would make a funny video to put on my YouTube, ch YouTube channel as a short. And so I did that. Right now, that video, that short, has 2.6 thousand views on, on it. It is like one of the most popular pieces of content I've ever put on my channel. And it's a dog snoring. And well, I, I mean, just... God damn it. <laughs> I'm in the wrong business. solidifies something that I've been telling you for ages, which is the dog is way more interesting than you are. That's not really up for debate. It's just truth. It just is. So what I took from that is our episode should be about 1% of the current length and should exclusively talk about dogs. So let's get started. <laughs> no. Okay. So we're going to talk about Edgefield Day because that's, that is what I promised and it's what the people want. Or at least it's the thing I wrote a lot of words about. So... It's the thing we've decided that people want. And what's the difference, really? Last week, I attended Edgefield Day 2 remotely, and I wanted to share what I learned about the vendors who presented. Now, for so list Edgefield Day, is the, it's about knives and swords and stuff, right? Yeah, the Razor's Edge Field Day. They shortened it a little bit, but, you know, it's implied. For those who aren't aware, uh, Edge Field Day is part of the Tech Field Day series of events put on by Gestalt IT. Uh, other variations include Security Field Day, which Chris, you've attended, uh, Cloud Field Day, which we have both attended, and Mobility Field Day, which we think is just adorable. <laughs> it's uh, also just regular Field Day. <laughs> Look at me, I'm moving around. Wow, do you think they could hold Mobility Field Day in Mobile, Alabama? That would be something. That would, that would be way too much synchronicity. They wouldn't be able to handle it. Think about it, though. The vendors that presented that present at these events are focused on the theme of the field day and how their solutions tackle that unique challenge. And as implied by the name, Edge Field Day is focused on edge computing, not swords. Much to my dismay when I showed up with my katana that needs some serious sharpening. This is uh, only the second iteration, 
implying that edge is a relatively new topic, which it's not exactly, but we'll get to that. So I guess we, we probably need to start by defining edge and identifying what's different about it versus other computing modes. So Chris, I'm going to put you on the spot and say, what do you think edge computing is? And then I'll tell you why you're wrong. I mean, the general definition I always use is edge computing is taking the processing of data as close to the end user as possible. Whereas in the olden days, you would have the mainframe back at home office. Edge computing takes all of that centralized processing and pushes it right out to the IoT device that is as close to you as possible. So you do edge computing in your car while you're driving down the road, or you do edge computing in your house while you're asking your Alexa to do your school homework, that sort of thing. It's not bad. Here's why you're wrong. <laughs> so I think it's about two things. And this was actually a topic of, an, of a roundtable, I won't say debate, but a roundtable discussion that we had before the vendors presented. I think of it as two things. One, it's a set of constraints that are placed upon the computing environment. So you're going to have probably very limited space, unlike a data center where you've got racks and racks to throw things. Uh, you're going to have very limited power. So that could be a few kilowatts. That could be a watt or two, you know, for those IoT device kind of situations. And you're probably also going to have very constrained network bandwidth. You're not going to get 10 gig or 100 gig. You're going to get one, probably less than one gig. Um, another big constraint is no local technical people are available at whatever the site is. So whether that's in your car, your home, a service, a service station or sensor station along a, a rail line, because that's a, a one company I talked to a while ago, that was basically what they specialized in was software that runs on all of these signaling stations along rail lines that cover thousands of miles. There's no one just standing there going, oh, something's broken, better fix it. Like when something goes wrong, they have to roll a truck out there. Um, and also, typically, you're dealing with harsher or at least less controlled environments. So you're not going to have really nice air conditioning and, and, you know, vented floors and all of that. It could literally be the back of a truck that's going through a war zone or, you know, some station out in the middle of the desert. So those are all the constraints and, and uh, environments that Edge has to contend with. And it's also about the operational model. Typically, since there's no technological person, you need something to be as zero touch as possible. So the device gets shipped out to a location and all the human on the other end needs to do is connect one or two cables and that's it. Like you don't want them to have to do anything more complicated, which implies a high level of automation and probably also centralized management. So. That's what I think of when I think of edge computing. But I think you you raised a valid point, which it's also about processing, running applications closer to where the data is being generated. And that is kind of the central thesis of the first two vendors that we're going to talk about. Does that line up with you? Yeah. I mean, definitionally, I think that the fact that it's actually doing computing is important because otherwise, because I agree with in terms of what you've basically built here is a self-contained device or 
deployment. Something that runs all by its lonesome, doesn't require uh, hands-on, and in fact is basically environmentally sealed so that it can be run in rough environments. But you could very easily make the argument that, well, in that case, an SD-WAN device would qualify. And I don't think that counts as edge computing. That's a connector. You know, that's extending a network. So you really do have to have that extra step of, oh, and it's doing work for you. Right, exactly. So if the SD-WAN device is also running some containers on it that are doing data processing at the edge, okay, now that's more edge computing than just a thing that connects my other things. Right. Okay. I love it. We did it. Show over. I win. <laughs> I mean, no, what teamwork. Anyway, <clears throat> so the first vendor, uh, it was Store Magic. Great name. No notes. Um, first off, despite how I alluded to the edge as being relatively new, um, these challenges are not entirely novel. Uh, edge workloads have really been around a long time under different names. Uh, robo, remote retail, etc. So store magic uses edge in their world to refer to small sites where data is being generated and applications need to be run locally, but they're not going as extreme as IOT. They're, they're thinking of something more like a retail location where some servers can be there, just not what you're typically going to have in a data center. So what they were talking about is that we basically live in a data-driven world. Tons of data exhaust, as it's called, is emanating from these sites. And it is uh, cheaper and more efficient to analyze, filter, and summarize that data at the edge. Uh, just remember that shipping data off to the cloud may be, one, incredibly expensive, and two, technically infeasible. Just try moving one terabyte over a 5G cellular modem and you'll quickly see what I mean. Now imagine trying to move one terabyte an hour. It's not going to work. So what you need is a storage solution that can house a lot of data on the cheap with physical constraints and limited hardware. Enter StoreMagic's SVSAN. Now, their claim is that it can run on any hardware, storage, and hypervisor. And wow, that's a bold claim. So when you actually look a little closer at their claim, there are a ton of caveats. So I, I assume one of those caveats is it can't run on any hardware storage or hypervisor. <laughs> you would be correct. Though the hypervisor, it's pretty close. Um, what they're actually talking about is it can run on VMware, Hyper-V, or KVM, which covers like almost all of them, right? Most, yeah. yeah. Uh, for storage, what they mean is it can use any standard hard drive or SSD that you would have in a typical server or even a workstation, as long as it can run one of those hypervisors. You're not going to use SD cards, but honestly, you shouldn't use SD cards. Um, for the server, it's going to have to be x86. So ARM, ARM servers, sorry, you're not welcome to the party. Um, but the important bit is that the nodes in the cluster that are serving up the storage don't have to be identical. They just need to be able to run the same version of the hypervisor. And that's a pretty big differentiator from competitors that expect both the node 
that expect both of the nodes to be nearly identical down to say like the array controller and sometimes even the firmware level. I don't know if, how many times you've tried to set up uh, VMware vSAN, but you know, it'll bark at you <laughs> if things are not exactly the same across all of your nodes. Yeah, and if it isn't the same, even if it is okay based on their wizard checklist, um, usually it ends up not being okay in interesting and exciting ways. <laughs> exactly. Uh, StoreMagic's standard deployment is a two-node cluster. They do have an option for a three-node cluster, but most people don't use it. The two-node cluster requires an external quorum witness. You can host it yourself, or you can have StoreMagic provide a quorum witness as a service. The witness can be remote, and it only requires an eight kilobit per second connection and it will support up to 3,000 milliseconds of latency, also known as three seconds. Thank you for doing the math. Uh, you know, it was when they said 3,000 milliseconds, I'm like, can you just say three seconds? I guess it sounds more <laughs> Wait impressive. A minute. Um, the other thing they said is that a single remote witness can support up to 1,000 sites, 1,000 clusters. So it's a 1,000 to 1 ratio. So that... Witness doesn't need to do a whole lot aside from just going, yep, you're both still good. Carry on. <laughs> um, most of their competitors require or at least did require a three node cluster at a minimum. My understanding is that at this point, vSAN can run in a two node cluster, but there's a lot of caveats there. Um, so if I'm doing my math right, and I probably am not, uh, I would say the three nodes are generally more expensive than two nodes in a Raspberry Pi. Um, although in this economy, I'm not sure. Have you looked at Raspberry Pi, Raspberry Pi prices on the secondary market? Woof. I mean, we looked at them last week. We sure did. From the security perspective, the data can be encrypted before it's written to disk. Uh, it's using KMIP. So you can bring your own key manager or you can use theirs, which they offer as a service. Uh, the bonus here is that you don't have to rely on the operating system or hypervisor level encryption. You can just have this do the uh, encryption for you. Also, if you happen to need to scale your compute, but you don't have to scale your storage, then the SV SAN can serve storage up to other nodes on the network. So your compute can be scaled independent of storage requirements. And again, that wasn't usually the case with a lot of HCI solutions. If you needed more compute or storage, then they'd say, hey, just slap in another node. Um, and that's expensive. So the storage that's being presented is being presented in iSCSI target format. So if your thing can uh, use an iSCSI initiator, you'll be in good shape. As of right now, it doesn't support presenting the storage as NFS. So uh, you're getting block level storage. And if you needed to present NFS, you could like provision a VM to do that and then just put this storage on the back end. Starts to be a little more complicated at that point. Well, it's your own damn fault for using NFS. <laughs> Based on what I've seen so far, uh, StoreMagic and SVSAN gives you a simple, reliable, and pretty inexpensive storage solution for robo and retail locations that are okay with running a two-node cluster for storage. In terms of cost, we're talking about a thousand bucks a node for this software package. Hmm. 
which if you know how much vSAN costs the license, not bad. That's better than I thought you were going to say. Yeah. In terms of the solution, uh, there's definitely some room for improvement. The team that composes Store Magic is the spiritual successor to HPE's Store Virtual platform. I don't know if they borrowed the actual code, but it definitely uh, some of the people worked on that solution. So you'll see a lot of commonalities there. I don't know if you had any experience with Store Virtual, Chris, but I sure did. Woof. I think it might have already been on the way out. Yeah, it was never a new deployment that I was doing with Store Virtual. It was existing clients that we ended up at that had implemented Store Virtual in the past. And usually it was either dealing with an issue that Store Virtual had caused or migrating them <laughs> off of it. Right. Yeah. This solution seems to be updated for the modern era, but it still has some old fashioned stuff. Like it doesn't have a front facing REST API for you to interact with. Their primary automation platform is PowerShell, which like I like PowerShell, but I would like to see, you know, Terraform support or Ansible support or something like that for this, especially if you're going to be automating a couple hundred or even a thousand locations. Now, we did get an embargoed presentation after we turned off the stream. And that's going to be coming out in a couple of weeks, and it does address some of the concerns. So if that's of interest to you, keep an eye out. That will be published shortly. Any uh, comments, questions about store magic? Um, well, it makes sense where the, where the name came from anyway. It's magic. Boogie, woogie, woogie. That's <sighs> electric. Never mind. Moving on. <laughs> the second presenter was Solidime, which is a portmanteau of solid state and paradigm. You got it? I actually liked the name more before I knew that. I don't they didn't actually say that during the presentation. That's my assumption. But given what they offer as a product, it kind of makes sense. Uh, many edge applications will be ingesting and processing mountains of data that are collected from locally attached sensors. Maybe you're using that data to feed a local inferencing model because you're doing AI at the edge. Maybe that data needs to be transformed and summarized before it gets loaded up to the cloud. How much data are we talking about? They brought up smart vehicles, which have between 60 and 100 sensors that generate 1.5 terabytes of data per hour. That includes my car. <laughs> my car is generating this kind of information. Now, and get, selling it on the dark web. Oh, absolutely. It's not that dark. As we, as we covered in a previous episode, uh, a lot of that data never leaves the car, right? It is processed to some degree and then ignored or thrown away. But you need something locally that can at least temporarily house the data and do that processing on it. And so here's where Solidime comes in. Um, they are born of a partnership between Intel and SK Hynix. So this is like the SSD and Optane division of Intel. You know, Optane is no longer a thing, right? They're still, they're still manufacturing it, but they're not further developing it and they're gonna stop selling it in like two years or something, which I guess sad. Gone too soon. I know. So clearly what 
Solidime is focused on is SSDs, and they see them as the future, hence the name. Uh, they're focused on SSDs mostly at the SLC and QLC levels, though they do have another level coming up, which I'll get to in a moment. SSDs are generally good for low power consumption, and QLCs in particular can have extremely dense storage configurations. They showed off a QLC drive that stored 61 terabytes on a single drive. Wow. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it took me a second to realize that you actually did, in fact, say terabytes. Terabytes. Yeah. Right. With the T. With the T. And the Arabytes. Yeah, all of those Arabytes. We just happened to have done a whole show. Chris, you spearheaded that one about SSDs. So I'm not going to go in depth here on what all the different QLC, MLC things are. Let's do just like the short, short version, which is that SSDs have cells that store data. You can store more than one bit in a cell, but there is a distinct trade-off. The more bits you pack into that cell, the slower the read and write process tends to be, and the shorter the overall lifetime of the cell. But more bits per cell means higher storage density and lower cost per byte. SLC are single-level cell, which gives you the best performance and lifetime, but also the highest cost. QLC are quad-level cells with the opposite characteristics. There's no penta-level cell just yet. That would be five bits per cell, but they are coming. Uh, and Solidime showed a working prototype of a pentacell SSD in 2022. So they'll probably hit the market next year would be my guess. Uh, but QLC is the highest density at the moment. Generally speaking, SSDs hold up better to difficult environment environmental conditions than hard drives do. So things like extreme temperature, moving the devices around, bumping them, dust and grime. Uh, uh, traditional hard drives don't deal well with a lot of that. There's a reason why no. the, uh, the iPod moved from a spinning hard drive to an SSD pretty quickly. But the hard drive smart. so cute. They were so cute. Oh, what was that? The iPod Nano? Was that the Nano? Oh, it was the, no, it was the original iPod only had uh, the thumbnail-sized physical hard drive or spinning disk hard drive for like a generation. And I think the original iPod had a spinning hard drive for a couple generations, but it was the Nano that had a four gig spinning hard drive, which was then immediately replaced with an SSD. <laughs> if I'm remembering correctly, it was like one gen. And they were like, no, nah, it just isn't working. <laughs> Uh, Solidime's market research shows that storage is growing fastest at the edge. Okay. And uh, that is largely on SSDs. The SSD growth has been 50% year over year. And according to a NetApp study, 94% of drives deployed at the edge are supporting a read-intensive workload, which QLCs are pretty good at. So essentially, you need lots and lots of storage in a small space that is extremely read performant. And that equates to Solidime's D5P5336. That's 
Uh, there will be a quiz later, so commit that to memory. It just rolls right off the tongue. Right. That's the one that has a 61 terabyte <laughs> storage size. They showed that using the E1.L form factor, that's the uh, Intel ruler form factor that we've talked about in the past, they were able mm -hmm. to fit two petabytes in a 1U rack server. What that? Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, about that. Uh, yeah, that drive comes in the E3.S, U.2, and E1.L form factors. And um, if you're not familiar with all those form factors, I think we talked about them a little bit in the SSD episode, but essentially the E3.S and E1.L form factors are part of the new EDSFF, I think is the acronym form factor from these SNEA. Are, these names are just great. <laughs> They're awful. <laughs> Everything about them is designed to make you run away screaming. If I could just break it down very simply, it's a much smaller connector than what you would traditionally see on the back of an SSD. They support better airflow. They support immersion cooling if you want to. In fact, Solidime was used for Intel's reference architecture for immersive cooling. And the new connector can support PCI 5 and 6 bus speeds. They're hot swappable and they can support CXL. So basically, they're better. In conclusion, this good, old thing, bad. Exactly. So you can expect that the older form factor, which was U.2, is going to be slowly phased out over the next decade in both data centers and at the edge. Another factor to consider is how often components tend to fail. Uh, depending on the remoteness of your edge deployment, the cost to replace components can be incredibly high, that whole rolling a truck out to a site that's 100 miles away. So Solidime talked about how they have the lowest average failure rates in the industry. Good for them. Um, edge devices also tend to be in hostile environments in terms of security. Potential hackers might be able to get, get physical access to the device, so you want things to protect against data being exfiltrated. And Solidime includes features like drive level locking, key per IO, and namespace encryption. So if security is a concern for you, definitely look into what they're offering from an SSD. I was like, yeah, this is pretty cool. I don't think I would buy a Solidime drive because I'm not the target customer. But if you're someone who's working at the edge and needs very capacious SSDs, they might be a good fit for you. Yeah, and I suspect actually it's a pretty good future-looking product because right now there is probably a limited amount of workloads that could legitimately boast of generating 1.5 terabytes of data per hour. But that's probably not going to last. It hasn't in the past. <laughs> if, <laughs> if you follow the trend line of data that we've been producing, it... It's not going down, let's just say. No. No. No, and as you add more devices, and all of those devices are, in fact, incredibly chatty, this stuff is going to in expand on an exponential rate. Mm-hmm. Because, goodness, uh, 
one thing we're not going to do as technologists is make our log files more um, concise. Listen, it's trace level or nothing. That's where <laughs> I'm at. So, so far, the first two presenters, you might be thinking to yourself, like, man, this feels like storage field day, not edge field day. Like, what, what's with all the storage? And, you know, you take the vendors that, that are willing to pay to be part of the, the program. Uh, the last presenter fills out the edge category a little bit more completely. And that was Node Weaver. And I've actually taken a briefing from them in the past, but uh, it was refreshing to talk to them and see where they've uh, moved the product since then. So now we're going to bring in characteristics like networking, compute, and orchestration. Um, so Node Weaver, we Node Weaver weaves together all of the nodes in your edge deployment. Look at that. Where did they get the name from? Now you know. Um, also, their CEO, Carlo DeFara, is Italian and has a fantastic accent. So um, <laughs> just worth watching the, vi the videos on the Tech Field Day website to hear him talk animatedly about what they've built. It's just enjoyable. Now, what exactly did they build? Um, Node Weaver sits between the hardware and your orchestration leader. Uh, is it a hypervisor? Is it an operating system? The answer is yes. By which I mean it's an operating system based on Alpine Linux, which means it's very stripped down. It's meant to run on very limited amounts of resources. So their requirement to run Node Weaver on a node is one core and one gig of memory. That's all you need. You can, I mean, back in my day, it was 16 megabytes, but I guess one gig is fine. I would say, if you go back far enough or you're on a low power enough device, it's not going to be able to run that. So is it going to go on your IoT stuff? Maybe not. But anything further back from that, it will probably fit on. So yes, it can run on a Raspberry Pi. It can run on an Intel Nook. It can run on an Intel Atom processor. Like It can run on most devices. And that's actually part of their claim is... Remember that thing where the previous company was saying any hardware, any device? No way, no Weaver says that, and they pretty much mean it. Uh, they trotted out, I want to say, 50 different devices that they can run on, and they run on both ARM and on x86 devices. So you're not limited to one of the two. I did catch them, though. I was like, do you support Risk Five? And they don't yet. But Carlo, the CEO, feels that the future of RISC-V is bright, so they are already in the process of adopting their operating system to run on RISC-V. So once actual RISC-V devices are available, they will probably run on it. Beyond that, um, a big part of their approach is zero touch. So since edge locations probably won't have technical folks local, they want you to be able to ship the device and just have the end user plug it in. And the way that they do that is one of two options. You can either provision a USB drive that will be shipped with the device. And when they power up the device, it just needs to have the USB drive plugged in. It boots the USB, the USB bootstraps the device, and you're ready to go. 
or you can have it netboot if you have netbooting available at your location. Lots of them don't, so that's why they included the USB approach. And they have a wizard that will help you build the USB drive, so you're not going into arcane configuration files and trying to write was like a cobbler script or whatever. You don't have to do that. They kind of help you with it a little bit. Um, in terms of the components that are included, uh, they have a level one or level two hypervisor. I think those are the two levels. Uh, one that's more of a traditional hypervisor that can run like, it emulates all of the components for the VM. So if you needed to run like a traditional Windows VM and it needs to see serial ports for whatever reason, it can run that type of hypervisor, uh, but it can also run a, a one where everything is para-virtualized. So for more modern VM formats, it can run uh, those types of virtual machines. It also comes with its own storage system. They wrote a distributed file service uh, that can take the storage from all your different nodes and throw them in a big resource pool and then carve that pool up for any virtual machines or containers that you want to spin up on the platform. They said it's based off of a couple different open source projects, but they wrote portions of it themselves as well. And I was like, oh, that's you. You wrote your own. You wrote your own uh, storage system, huh? That's a thing that crazy people do, as we covered <laughs> pretty recently. On the uh, on the networking side, every node runs its own virtual switch like you would with any traditional hypervisor. So you can add virtual networks. They also support security groups and they support adding virtual routers to your nodes. So if you need to do some complex network routing and have all these different networks, you can do that with, uh, with their out of the box deployment. And for compute, like I said, you can run virtual machines, but you can also install Kubernetes they have a Kubernetes flavor based on micro Kubernetes that you can just say, I want to run Kubernetes on these nodes and they'll provision the virtual machines that will run micro Kates. Or you can bring your own flavor if you want to do that. But their out of the box one is there and available for you if you want to do that. For me, Nodeweaver's presentation was the most impressive. They did a live demo uh, with five different delegates in the room. Each was given a device that was not pre-provisioned. It just had a USB stick in it. Each of them powered on the device. And then 10 minutes later, each of them got an email from the device saying that it was fully provisioned and running the, uh, the Node Weaver software. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, when I looked at the solution as a whole, it feels very much like the center for the edge. It had a centralized management console that you could connect to and view the status of all the nodes or multiple clusters. It includes stuff like what would be included with vCenter, vSAN, NSX. So it has that virtualized storage. It has that virtualized networking and it has the hypervisor layer. So I thought, wow, this is pretty cool stuff. And it also makes me wonder if Nodeweaver would be a good fit for the data center too. I asked them about that and they said, we see the growth, uh, the easiest growth at the edge. To grow in the data center, we would have to displace existing solutions. 
there are no solutions at the edge like this. So we don't have to displace anybody. We can just sell directly into it. And I was like, okay, I get it. Um, if you're interested in giving, taking this for a spin, they have a trial version available on their website. And yes, you can just put it on a Raspberry Pi. I may have a few laying around. I built a chair out of them, you know, so I might take one off the throne and just, you know, lay down Node Weaver and, and see, uh, and see how it runs. Well, if you take one off the throne, where will the dog sit? Oh, on the bed of Intel Nooks. Oh, that I have next. Of course, I forgot. I forgot. I Silly roll those me. for her because that stays warmer. <laughs> they do tend to run hotter. It's just the way it is. And so does she. Uh, so that was Edge Field Day too. Interesting presenters. Edge certainly seems like a growth category. Uh, if you, as the listener, are interested in viewing any of the presentations, they're all available at TechFieldDay.com, and of course, links will be in the show notes all of the good things. Uh, any comments from you, Chris, before we close out? No, you kind of stole my thunder with the whole node weaver sounds like something that could work in the data center. That was the biggest thing I thought was it's interesting as node as, as edge technologies start to mature and start to become something that is more enterprise level, shall we say mm -hmm. that the ideas there are applicable all across the IT landscape. Yeah. To a certain degree, it's borrowing some ideas that already exist in the cloud, like taking some of those cloud operational principles that make sense at the edge and, and applying them. But because it's kind of like a new open space, people are coming up with new ideas, which then, like you said, those could trickle back to cloud and traditional data center pretty rapidly. All right. Yeah. And I mean, I would be curious. I do want to see a little bit more about that one. Um, I always get a little nervous when a company that's not um, only a file system company says, oh, we wrote our own file system. <laughs> yeah, that did make me a little nervous. I don't remember exactly which open source projects they cited, but it did seem like they were starting from a solid foundation and just tweaking it for their platform. So I was like, okay. Yeah. Yeah, because anyone who writes a file system from scratch is immediately put on a watch list somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, hey, thanks for listening or something. I guess you found it worthwhile enough if you made it all the way to the end. So congratulations to you, friend. You accomplished something today. Now you can sit on the couch, play with the puppy I have sent to your 3D printer, and consider for a moment, how do you throw out a trash can? You've earned it. You can find uh, more about our show by visiting our LinkedIn page. Just search Chaos Lever or go to our website, chaoslever.cow, where you'll find show notes, blog posts, and general tomfoolery. We'll be back next week to see what fresh hell is upon us. Ta-ta for now. I mean, the obvious, the obvious answer to how you get rid of a trash can is to mail it to the Houston Astros. <laughs> I don't understand that because it's a sports thing. But it's still funny. <laughs>